My biggest fear is always that this thing's going to pop open while I'm singing before I'm up here, and you can all get to hear those beautiful dulcitones. So, Jake, next time I'm here, you can make sure that doesn't happen. But <laughs> so, morning, everyone. My name's Chris Wormeskirsch. I'm one of the mission group leaders here at Hope, and I'm so happy to be able to be here this morning, this week after Easter, and open God's Word together. So in a few minutes, we'll be opening to 1 Peter 2, verse 13. So if you want to start flipping there now, if you've got a paper Bible. But before then, we're going to be talking about freedom today. And I know for a lot of you, you just thought about like fireworks and bald eagles and all those other really cool things associated with freedom, but it's unfortunately not going to look quite like that one. What I want us to do today is while we consider what freedom really is, we get, a new, we get a new understanding of our freedom and a new understanding of what obligations come with that freedom. Which if you've already thought, wait, freedom and obligations don't really go together. We're going to be unpacking all that. But I'm about to date myself. Some of you are going to be like, wow, you're really old. And some are going to be like, well, okay. But I was eight when 9-11 happened. So a lot of my life has been talking about freedom. I remember in 2001, pretty distinctively, lots of people were talking about freedom. It was all over bumper stickers. Since 2001, so many churches have had so many July 4th services where you've got like more American flags than Bibles in the sanctuary. So I think, I think we've really, in the past 20 years, been talking a lot about this. And if you went up to a random person on the road and you asked, what does freedom mean? I think really we'd fall into two camps. There would be one camp, I think, that would say, freedom means no one can tell me what to do. The government can't tell me how to spend my money. The government can't tell me what I can and can't wear. I have no obligations to other people. I alone decide what I'm going to do. But then I think there's another extreme. There's another extreme where people say, I alone determine who I am and how I'm defined. There's no overarching social structure. There's no overarching story. I alone am the only person who can tell you who I am and how I'm defined and by what means you can address me, right? And I think some of us, we can, we can identify a little bit with one of those two things. So really kind of keeping these on the extremes, right? The people say, there's nothing I owe to other people and there's nothing I'm owed by other people. And I think you can see already what's kind of coming out of this. It's this idea that everything is about me. Me as an individual, me as a person, my own autonomy, my own ability to define myself, and my own ability to say what's going to happen in my life, both in the past and in the present. And I'm afraid as Americans, we've kind of fallen into this trap a little bit, right? We've only defined ourselves by ourselves. We only think about what's best for me. We only think about what's most convenient for me. So hopefully this morning, I'm praying that we get a little bit out of that and start to think about our freedom in terms of other people, in terms of the way that God wants us to exercise this freedom. Now, I know it's been at least two Sundays since we've been in First Peter, and there's also been two sermons for most of us in between that. So let's resituate ourselves in First Peter a little bit. So in the context of the world around, it's about the year 62, 63. So Jesus had been crucified and risen about 30 years ago. And there's this new emperor in town named Nero. He's been emperor for about like five years. He's been kind of a big man for about 10. And this man is probably one of the last people you'd want to be an emperor. So he's deeply paranoid. 
Everything that he thinks about is himself and how to protect his own power. He's so paranoid, in fact, he thinks all of his siblings, his parents, his friends, his royal court, everyone's out to get him. He is constantly watching his back, so much so that he kills his mom and kills all of his siblings, just because he's so deeply afraid that these are the people that are going to take him up. These are the people who are going to dethrone him and move his power away from him. And this man's emperor. He's not like a democratically elected guy. He's an emperor. So he's put into power beyond the will of the people. And I'm, I'm just, I can't imagine like living under that, right? <laughs> like you hear, you hear in the, whatever the version of a Roman newspaper is, probably some kid yelling on the street, that he kills his mom because he's just so afraid. You're like, and this guy's, this guy's the one making the laws? This is the guy who's really developing the world? Oh, I see. But more than that, I think there's this pocket of Jewish, Jewish people who are kind of revolting against the Roman government, right? When Rome took over a couple hundred years ago, Jerusalem and the state of Israel became a little pocket government under Israel, or under Rome. They have kings, they have leaders, but really it's Rome who's in charge of Israel right now. And for about 60 years now, You've had all of these people claiming to be kings of Israel, raising up revolts against Rome. They're advocating for armed conflict against the man Nero, right? So, of course, you're starting to see these Jewish-Roman tensions start to heat up. All of these rebels are rising up against one of the biggest superpowers the world has ever seen, hoping to dethrone them and make their little nation-state into the big superpower of the earth themselves. And a lot of them are kind of doing it under the guise of religion. They've said that God is the one who set them in their state, so they should have ultimate earthly power. And some are still kind of operating under faith in God, that God has said, I will save you from the nations of the world, we'll set up Israel, and through Israel we'll raise up a king who's going to save the world. So it's a little bit of an ideological, a little bit of a theological war that's brewing with Rome, the big superpower. And at this time, the Christian movement's only three decades old. So Jesus, like I said, he died and rose again about 30 years ago. So church is kind of getting its footing. I'm, I'm not even 30, so I'm like thinking, that's not enough time to get a personal identity, let alone, you know, you're still building out, working out all the kinks in the system. You're still trying to work out what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to follow Jesus after 30 years? So in comes Peter. So he writes this letter. This is the first one that we have in the Bible, First Peter. And he's writing it from Jerusalem, seeing that there's a bunch of Christians who've been scattered across the nation, a lot of Christians who don't really have a home, a lot of Christians working on their identity, not sure who they are, not sure where they belong. So out of that comes First Peter. So, so far, we've seen the way that Peter opens the letter with just this effusive praise of the Trinity. Like, he's very explicit. He gives praise to the Father, he gives praise to Jesus, he gives praise to the Holy Spirit, and then he tells us, Christians, here's where you sit in the church. Here's where you sit. You are the ones who've been raised with Jesus into a living hope. The Father has brought you into his eternal life, and he's brought you into this family. But he's also brought you to a family in this context, this context of persecution, this context of homelessness, this context of not having a place to call your own. So he has one, one major word throughout this letter for them. Persevere. He's, he's writing this letter to say, even though you don't have a home, even though you're building an identity, this is who you are, and this is what you hold on to when everything is shaking around you. When it seems like the world's gone crazy around you, persevere in the name of Jesus. And then he opens up just some really, like, 
really some brilliant stuff in the first chapter, right? So, you know, you start in the Bible, Genesis 12, God gives a promise to a man named Abraham, said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He says, you have an inheritance in God. And then Peter says, that inheritance given to Abraham is now the inheritance given to the church. Everything once promised to Abraham is actually coming to fruition, like literally right here in this room. We're seeing all that God had promised come through the church and now to these people who don't have a home and don't and are working on building their identity. And then he keeps going and says that even the prophets of old, all of their messages were for the sake of the church. They're not sure what they're, they know what they're talking about, but they don't know when it's all going to come, come to its climax. They don't know when they're going to see it all complete. And Peter says the, what the prophets spoke about came true in Jesus, and they wrote it for our sake. So when we read the Bible, we're reading a book written to us, even though it was written thousands and thousands of years ago. He's saying that this was for you. And he even makes this really bold, really beautiful claim that Jesus' appearance was for us. That when Jesus becomes incarnate and lives among us, that's for the sake of the church. That's for the sake of us. We are the ones who can benefit because Jesus reveals reveals himself in his grace to us. And then finally, as we kind of talked about in the last couple of weeks of chapter 2, the church is being built together as living stones into a temple. So the temple was the place where God made his presence dwell among Israel. But now that's us. We together are the place where God's presence is. So if you're wondering, where's God? What's God doing? God is here in this big auditorium at Glenbard East. If you're wondering, is God far from us? You can say God is here, right in this auditorium, because we are the temple in which he's chosen to dwell among us. So that brings us to today, finally. (laughs) We're in two. It's going to be verses 13 through 17. If you've got a Bible, you can read along. They're also going to be up there. You won't be reading along. It'll just be me. So it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together and thank you for this letter. Pray that you would open our ears and soften our hearts to the message you have for us that we could exercise our freedom as servants of you and as servants of one another in love. And pray that as we go throughout this morning, you would challenge us and convict us and encourage us that throughout this week we could live as servants of you in the freedom that you've given us in your Son. Pray this in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen. So my main main point this morning, it's also going to be up on the screen, is that Christian freedom is exercised in subjection to God neighbor, and government. Christian freedom is exercised in subjection to God, neighbor, and government. So my aim for this morning is to give us a big biblical picture of what Christian freedom means and encourage us to exercise our freedom toward one another in love and service. That even though we live as exiles, we are called to a life of service and love toward God and toward one another. Now, As I keep saying the word freedom, right? As I keep saying freedom, freedom, I think we need to take a step back and just say, how do we get this freedom? 
What is this freedom? And again, this comes in the context of a story. So when God created the world, he created humanity, and he gave them a job. He gave them dominion over the earth and over creation. He gave the original couple, Adam and Eve, the chance to name, hum- name animals, to tend over the creation, and extend the borders of the Garden of Eden, the paradise on earth, across the whole globe, so the whole globe would know the name of God. Their job was to protect this garden. Their job was to be images of God in the world so that when people looked at man, they would know what God looks like. But as we know, the original couple forsook their vocation. They instead listened to a serpent and decided that they were the ones who were going to rule, that they didn't need to rule according to God's rules. They didn't need to rule according to God's wisdom. But instead, they would rule on their own wisdom. They turned against God and rebelled. And through that made humanity rebels against God. Because now we know our own tendency to turn against God. We know our own ways to participate in systems of violence, of exploitation, of lust, of greed, of anger and violence. All of these sins that overtake the world, all of these nasty, violent things that overtake the world, we know that in our hearts, we want to partake in those. And so what God does is after the original couple gives up their vocation, he calls Abraham, the man I the man I named before. And through Abraham, he creates a nation, Israel. And this nation was supposed to be part of God's solution to the problem of sin. That as humanity turned their power over to sin, to death, to these powers of exploitation, that it would be through Israel that humanity could find a way out. Find a way out of these violent systems and find a way back to God. But it turns out these people, Israel, were just as much a problem as the rest of the world was. They were just as evil and sometimes even worse because they knew what they should have done and instead turned against it. So what God does is he looks at the world and says, listen, I'm going to do this myself. I myself am going to free humanity from the evil and the sin and the violence that have overtaken them. So God comes as Jesus. Jesus comes in the form of a servant and dies and takes all of the brunt of sin, death, and evil in himself. And all of the sin and death and evil have been collected into one place, the body of Jesus, where he's killed, taking the power of sin and death with him into the grave. But uh, we know because of last week that that's not the final word. We know that Jesus, after taking all of the evil and sin upon himself, rises from the grave three days later, carrying with him new everlasting life that we are now welcomed into, a life of freedom from these systems of exploitation, these freedoms of sin and death and slavery, and instead we're given freedom through Jesus. And that's offered to anyone here who has faith in him, who just follows him and walks according to the way he teaches us, and is joined to him by the power of his Holy Spirit. So it sounds good, right? We're not slaves anymore to sin. We're not slaves anymore to death. No one wants to think about death, but we see it all the time, especially since 2020, even before then. But man, how many times do we hear about death in the news? But here's freedom from that. Here's the good news that that death doesn't have the final say over us any longer. (laughs) So what I want us to do again as we think about this freedom is we're going to look at three different aspects. We're going to look at the goal of our freedom. We're going to look at the explanation of our freedom. And we're going to look at the exercise of our freedom. So if you didn't write those down, they are going to be back up there. And we're going to spend a little time walking through them. So first, we're going to talk about the goal of our freedom. And this is going to be from 2 Peter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So I think 
probably half of us, our ears kind of perked up, and half of us kind of went, oh, what does that mean? So for some of us, our ears perked up when we heard the phrase, the will of God, right? Isn't there, if there's something that we want to know desperately, it's what is the will of God for our lives? I know a lot of times in college, especially, I thought about this when I was going from being an aerospace engineer to an LN major to a philosophy major, thinking like, what is the will of God in my life when I have so many thoughts of what I could do? Engineering was clearly off the table right away, but, <laughs> and I'm talking to a church of engineers, you're like, really? That's fun. You went to philosophy? Yeah. Um, so, so I thought a lot about what the will of God is. And I love it because right here, we don't have to think, we don't have to like hope and like grasp at straws for what the will of God is, because there's actually a few places explicitly in the Bible where it's listed. And right here, we see one of them. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. But I love it because, right, when, when in my situation, when I was thinking, what's the will of God for my life? I was thinking, what does God want me to do as a job? Where does God want me to live? What I didn't ever ask was, what does God want me to do for other people? What does God want me to do with my life in terms of this community that I've been brought into? And right here he says, doing good, silencing foolish people. And I'm like, well, what does that mean, right? I mean, it's great that I know the will of God, but that doesn't explain it much, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to explain it a little bit. So the second part of the verse says, silencing it says, silencing the ignorance of foolish people. And you're kind of like, what? How could that be? So what I, what I think is important is when we think about the context of First Peter, is what it meant to be a Christian in Rome. So Rome was a really big polytheistic country. And what's really interesting, something that we really can identify with, but we don't think we can, is that the government was deeply theological and deeply theocratic. The worship of the gods and the honoring of the emperor were about the same things at times. Because a lot of people believed, whether or not they had to, that the emperor was the embodiment of the Roman gods themselves. So when you gave homage to the Roman governor, you were giving homage to the gods of Rome. Like, every time there was a storm, you would pray to the gods of the storms that they would keep the storms back. When you were hungry, you'd pray to the god of grain that they would give you food. And all of that was actually part of being a good Roman citizen. All of that was part of being like a part of the Roman community. So what Christians did when they eschewed all of those other gods and said, we follow God as revealed by Jesus himself, was to say, we're throwing up, we're throwing up all of Roman community, we're throwing up all of Roman theology, and then we're instead living in our own community that's counter to all of that. And even more than that, I think, remember when I talked about the rebels earlier? When Christians and Jewish people weren't totally separated, I think a lot of Roman governors were starting to worry that these Christians were going to revolt too, that this rebellion that was kind of brewing was one that the church was going to participate in. So here's two places where Christians could really be like accused of being wrongdoers. They were seen as seditionists against Rome because they didn't worship their gods, and they could be seen as rebe rebels against God because they might be bringing up armed conflict against Rome. So what, what will of God is in this sense is that the church wouldn't be seen as either of those. They wouldn't be seen as troublemakers because they were picking up the swords. They wouldn't be seen as troublemakers because they were trying to throw off Rome. They weren't trying to say, we don't care about Rome, we don't care about their gods. What God's will was for the community that Peter was writing to 
was to still do good in those communities, that they would be such a force of good in the community, such a force of good in Rome, that there would be nothing that could be said against them. That if someone was like, yeah, I think that Christian down the street's a little crazy, he'd be like, uh, the one that saved six babies, the one that took care of my dying niece. Yeah, I don't think there's anything going on there. <laughs> like, just the force of the good that they're doing in the community would be its own buffer against the way that people would talk about them. And I would really challenge us, and I, I love doing this, especially as a mission group leader. What I want to do is kind of wink at the mission group leaders. We're not going to talk about every single way that this works out. That's what your group is for. So we're going to talk about two ways that we can do good. There's ways that we can do good as a community, and there's ways that we can do good just personally, right? There's ways that you can do good in your situations. So I know this is like, this it kind of feels like a given, but I don't, think about, I don't think we think about this enough. This letter was written to a community, right? This, it's written to elect exiles, not elect exile. It's not written to Mark. It's written to a community of people who all receive this letter and together work out what does it mean to live according to this letter? What does it mean to live the way of Jesus together? So I want us to first think about what can we do good? How can we do good to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people as a community? What are ways that Hope Fellowship in the community around us can do good? What are ways that we can together proclaim the excellencies of God to the people? Like, you know, if you think about it, we meet in a school, in a building that we don't own. So people, even just literally in this building, are going to see the ways that we operate as a community. What are ways that we can do good there? What are ways that we can challenge them? What are ways that we can upbuild them and encourage them together? And I love this because Peter's not pulling this out of nowhere. I think even from the earliest parts of the Bible, we see this idea that the community of God's people, by their life together, would signal the gospel to one another. So this is from Deuteronomy 4. And it'll also be on the screen, so don't worry about flipping there, as I'm clearly finding it. <laughs> so Deuteronomy 4, 6. Keep them and do them, which are God's instructions, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So the way that we do good together, God's design, even from the earliest parts of the Bible, was that by doing good together, the world could see the way that they are and be challenged by that and say, look at this great God and look at this people that he's called out. Or look at these people that he's set apart to be his own. Isn't that the type of life we want to live? So that's our challenge as a church. How are the ways that we as a church can do good and strengthen the community around us, the ways that we can encourage around us? And what are the ways your mission groups can challenge communities when you're meeting in people's houses surrounded by neighbors? What are the ways that your mission group can do good when they meet in your house? What are ways that your mission group can go into different contexts like pads or into other sort of charitable efforts? But there's also just ways that I think we as people, we as individuals are called to do good and challenge around us. So I was thinking about, like, if ancient Christians, you know, in 63 AD, people had stuff to say about them, what might people say about Christians today? And a couple of low-hanging fruit answers came up, thinking maybe Christians have an over-reliance on certain political figures, you know, maybe from the years 2016 to 2020. Anyway, what are ways that Christians acted with 
you know, certain big sicknesses? Was it always ways of charity and truth, or maybe were there other things that came up? So what I think what we can do is, in our context, the way that we love and care for our co-workers, the way that we love and care for our neighbors, the way we love and care for our friends, those are the ways where people's, like, perceptions of what the church is, perceptions of Christianity can be shaken. Because, right, it's really hard to talk about abstractions when you know people in those abstractions. It's hard to talk about, well, the church does this, but I know people in the church who aren't like that. Or, you, you know, you, it's hard to generalize when you know personal examples. So that's what I think part of what we're being called into is, like, how can the church be a witness by doing good? And how can we as individuals be called as a witness to be doing good? And I do want to preempt something really quickly. We have to say vehemently that our good works aren't what put us right with God. That's only faith in Jesus is what makes us right with God. But I think this does give us a different context for the good works that we do as Christians. And it's not to be made right with God or made right with one another, but it's just as an evangelistic tool. That the good works that we do are the ways that God might use to bring someone into this family. They might be the way that God uses to bring someone into a different church, right? But through the things that we can do as a community and as individuals, I think God is using that to really just change people's perception of the church and bring them into this kingdom family. All right, I thought it was time for you to write stuff down. <laughs> so we're going to move into a kind of a shorter middle part, and that's the explanation of our freedom. Talked about the way that we can, we talked about how we got our freedom. We've talked about what the goal of our freedom is. And now the explanation of our freedom. How are we to live as free people? This comes from verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So I love this first part, live as people who are free. And I think really, if you're kind of like, kind of dull to the things of God, if you're kind of cold right now, I think this is a sentence to think about. Live as people who are free. And a lot of us think of God as some stingy miser who doesn't want to give us anything, but instead he gives us this opportunity to live as free people, that even though he keeps talking to us as elect exiles, there's still freedom there. There's still a different way of life. There's still a different way of being a human that's offered to us in the family of God. So I really just sit and think. I love the way Tim Mackey says it. Take a long walk with a good cup of tea and think about what does it mean to live free as exiles. And then he kind of puts it negatively and positively. Here's what you don't do to live as free people. And here's what you do to live as free people. What you don't do is use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So I think a lot of what we see in the New Testament is when people were set free, when they joined the church, they saw it as some sort of license, license to do whatever they want, license to sin in whatever ways they want. Even in 1 Corinthians 5, you see a, a guy who starts sleeping with his stepmom, and you're like, oh, that certainly cannot be what the freedom that we were given is supposed to mean. But if we think about it, there are ways that we find Freedom. We find that same license in our hearts to use our freedom to do whatever we want. So this is a really quick, the will of God is to not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. <laughs> like if you're wondering what the will of God is, it's to not do whatever you want. The will of God is not for you to go and sin however you choose. The will of God is that we would live as servants of God. And it seems kind of paradoxical, right? We're talking about freedom. 
we're talking about living as free people, but then you see the word servants, living as servants of God. And here's something that I think the Bible is very clear on that I don't know if we always like to hear it, but it's very clear on. You're always going to be serving something. You're never going to be a truly autonomous individuals. And I think the book of Exodus puts this really well. When Moses says, let, when Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go from slavery to you so that they can instead serve God. He doesn't say, let my people go so that they can be all individuals doing their own thing. He says, let my people go so they can serve God instead. They don't serve you. They serve the God of the universe. So I think as we consider what it means to be free, kind of the broad overarching subject is to be free is to be a servant of God. And I love this. I, this, is, this is a little more than trivia, but if you ever go to like trivia and it's like Bible trivia, there's only four people in the Old Testament called servant of God. That was Moses, David, the servant of God from Isaiah 53, and Nebuchadnezzar. And these servants of God were the people who were called into like really extreme circumstances where they would be like spokespeople for God, where they would be the ones carrying out God's, work, God's will in the world. But now that's all of us. The same appellation gave to David, to Moses, is given to us now. We are the ones who work out the will of God as the church because he's invited us into his plan. So by serving God, we're kind of, this is how we change the world, right? This is how the world sees who, what God is like when we live in service to him, when we faithfully listen and obey his voice. So just the takeaway from our, this section, true Christian freedom is not for our own sake, we are set free to serve God and others, but we are not set free to sin. Oh, yeah, we weren't, we weren't set free for our own selves. We weren't set free to just run off on our own and do whatever we'd like. But we are instead set free so we could serve God and serve others together. So now we're in our, our last little bit. And I call it the last little bit even though I have the most notes here. <laughs> so buckle up. So this is the exercise of our freedom. So these come from 13, verses 13 and 17, but I'm going to read them backwards. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Then back up to 13. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So the first little bit I want to touch on is this honor everyone, this first little bit, honor everyone. And back in Rome, they had a kind of a different way of life than I think where you see the honor-shame culture. And we do see, we see the honor-shame culture around the world. I think a couple of Asian countries still live very much like this. But honor-shame culture is just your reputation is everything. Who you are, what kind of social standing you are, this is like what defines you and this is the only thing that people look at. Like, the equivalent would be, like, they're looking for the letters after your name and the email signature. They're looking to see where you're sitting at the table. They're looking to see, who knows this guy? Does anyone know him? Does anyone have anything good to say about him? How much money does he have? But I love this, because I think what Peter's trying to do here is saying that this way of life has to be undone in the church. When we honor everyone... We don't care about social status anymore. We don't look for the ways that people are defined. We don't look for reputation. But instead, we bring everyone from places of shame and marginalization and bring them to places of just, we raise them up. Like here in the church, we don't think about race. We don't think about 
well, we do think about race, but we don't look at that as the measure of who you are. We don't look at the measure of are you a man, are you a woman, and say that's the value we have. We say that your value is found in Christ alone, and it's not about your money, it's not about your job, it's not about your social status, it's not about anything except Jesus. So what Peter, I think, is challenging us here to do in this part of the verse is just say, everyone that you meet, whether they be in the center of social power or they be on the farthest regions, they are brought to the center of social power in the church. Social hierarchies are undone when we live life together in a place of equal standing before the foot of the cross. And I I wonder how many times that we think, well, I can't honor so-and-so because I hate him. I can't honor so-and-so because she's a terrible employee. People in my mission group are like, hmm, I know where I've heard that one before. But, like, it says everyone. I love, like, Peter just doesn't give any, any wiggle room. There's nobody, there's no person who exists that gets out of everyone, right? When you put 100% down, you can't find any exclusions. So Peter's call to honor everyone includes enemies, It includes neighbors, it includes friends, it includes people on the margin. The rat race of social structures and hierarchies is abolished in the church. We don't have to keep scrambling for money, we don't scramble for better jobs to find value here, but we should just be people who raise each other up, people who give each other this value, people who live in unity with one another. And I love that because, right, when we're talking about the way that our good works together as a community can bring silence to the ignorance of foolish people, like, what about, what would happen if we were the place where we lived in unity with people of different color, people of different sex, people of different social standings? What kind of evangelistic message would that send to the world when everyone's on equal footing here? What kind of message would it send to people who say bad things when we say, no, we love everyone here. Everyone is brought up here. Everyone is brought up to the same spot here. And... After that, there is a little section about loving the brotherhood. So we had this broad everyone, that's 100% of people. Now it narrows down to brotherhood, so specifically the church. And I love this because we've already heard earlier in 122, when, he, when Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We come to this place as Christians, not as like, friends, not as co-workers for some of us, not as people who know each other, but we come as a family. And, you know, we talked about this earlier with the parent-child dedication. We've all been adopted into the family of God, to the place where we can relate to God as our father. And, you know, if you think about it, if we have one father, that makes us all siblings. So that's where it says, love the brotherhood. And I love this because something about brotherhood brings a little more, like, closeness, I think, than just family would. Like, when we think about each other as siblings instead of people that we know, how much, more, how much more does that, like, stir up affection for one another in that phrase? How much more do you think about someone as brother, brother than just family member? And I love this. And I think a lot of people don't think about this as much. So I brought in this really—there's this New Testament theologian, Joseph Hellerman, wrote this amazing book, When the Church Was a Family. It's out of print. You probably have to find it, like, the deep trenches of a used bookstore, but— if you can find it, you, I, you should get it. It was in my school's library, which was such a great way for find it. So I took two, I took two quotes from it. They're going to be up there, and it's going to help us rethink what it means to be a family. It says, Paul's point is not simply that God is now my father and I am now his son. God, in Jesus' great work of redemption, 
was not establishing a series of isolated personal relationships with his individual followers. He was creating a family of sons and daughters, siblings, who are now all one in Christ Jesus. The saving work of of Christ therefore has a corporate as well as an individual dimension. For For Paul, the church is a family. So I like the way that he puts it. He says, it's not just that we are saved as individuals. That's certainly a part of it. We all know that. But it's more, too. And I think that's really good news. I really, if I was just put into something where I do it myself, that's not always fun. I don't love doing things by myself all the time. But being brought into a family, that God's plan was to create a new family, I think brings so much joy. The same place when I was saying earlier that like people of different, like, marginalized communities can be brought in and brought up it's because they're brought up as a family together they're brought into something much bigger we're not just taking them and say oh we're colorblind here or we don't think about gender here we're saying no we think about you as a sibling now that's how we truly honor people is by bringing them into calling them family right you don't use that very lightly anymore and i think a lot of people like especially now i'm blessed that i really like my family and i know a lot of people here do struggle with that but here's a family where we can love one another. Here's a family where we can, all of those things that we want out of these close relationships, we can have that here through the power of Jesus and his spirit. And I do, I think this is kind of one of those places where mission group leaders, if you're writing down questions, this is the one to write down. But I just want to talk about one big way that we can act as a family. And it's just presence. I have another quote from Hellerman on the screen. So they call it ra- radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. We, in America, have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or the home. So I bring that whole quote in because I just think His big point here is that we stay and grow up together. The way that we love the brotherhood is we are just present for one another. That when we have widows, when we have single people, when we have students, our presence with them is the way that we honor and love them. That the way that we are together right now is the way that we love the family of God. It's just being together, caring for each other's kids, making dinner for each other. Whatever big thing that people need, this is how we love together. And you can only know that when we're present together. You can only know that when we're actually spending time together and growing. And again, I think the way that this shows the world the goodness of God is just by saying anyone is welcome to this family. We don't have any exclusions based on who you are or what you know. But said you can be brought into this family as a sibling. And I love that. So We've got two more to go, and it's fear God and honor the government. So fear God, I think this one, we don't like this sentence because it doesn't give us the warm fuzzies in our stomach, you know. Think about God, we want to think about love, but we hear fear God here. And I think some of us want to just kind of tamp it down a little bit. We don't want the word fear to have its full meaning, so we just say honor God. You should live in reverence of God, which again, is totally part of it. But the Bible gives us the picture of God who rides on the storm clouds, the God who rips the earth open, who controls volcanoes and makes the forest clap and worship him. This is a big and powerful God that we worship. And I think some of us really do. We need to learn what it means to fear God because we are so apathetic to the things of God 
that we're so far from the things of God that to learn what fear is would be the way that we move into the family and say, this is the God that I want to worship. The God who controls the storms, the God who created the earth, this, this powerful God is the one that I want to get to know. And then you get to know God as the one who, even though he controls the storms, is the one who came in the form of man to die for our sakes. So it's, it's, a, it's a balance that we're always going to be living with. What does it mean to fear God, but also fear the God who's been revealed to us in Jesus? And again, I think this is something for mission groups to work out. But as you read through the Bible, we need to sit through all of these descriptions of God, his multifaceted character traits, where sometimes we need to learn what it means to fear God. And sometimes we need to learn what it means to love God and hold those together. And we hold those together in the place of the cross, where the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, where death and sin were destroyed. So I was kind of thinking, like, why would Peter say this to the exiles? And some of you, if you think like me, it's like, especially third in the list. Doesn't it seem like this should be number one? This should be like 1 Peter 1, 1, fear God. Okay, 1 Peter 1, 2. This is Peter writing, by the way. <laughs> but instead we find it here deep down. And I think what the threat for the elect exiles to whom he was writing was idolatry. Like, there's so many other gods. There's like, if you lived in like Ephesus, you could live in a house and right next door is the big temple to Artemis. If you lived in, it's like, it's like if you lived like next door to the United Center downtown, like you always know the bulls are playing and it, it gets busy and there's so much going on. That's what I think that the ancient world lived in. You're always living next to a temple. So the threat of idolatry was huge. And more than that, the threat of doing your own thing was even bigger. Like just the threat that God doesn't care. Like I'm somewhere, who knows where, no one cares, God doesn't see. But what Peter says is fear God even in these times. Even when so many other things want our worship, even when so many other things call for our love, fear God. When the way you want to live isn't what matches the way God wants you to live, fear God in those instances. And finally, we're going to look at the big one, the fun one. We all love this one. Honor the government. And like, talking about honoring the government in 2022, love it. All right, because I've talked about the government in the past two years more than I have in 30 like, I could reasonably go out through my whole life from the ages of zero to 27, not thinking about the government much. And then March 2020 seemed to hear daily what the government wants of us, what the government's new mandate for us is. So I want to pick up on one really important little phrase from verse 13 that I think is going to set everything in its context. Be subject for the Lord's sake to human institution. And I think when we kind of see that, we, we don't subject ourselves to government because, like, we're good, like, little government lackeys. We love, we're, like, big civics fans. We took all of the poli-sci in college. But it's for the Lord's sake that we live under the auspices of the government. And I think, I think uh, Wheaton professor and Anglican minister Esau McCauley puts this really well in his book, Reading While Black. That we have to, when we read the Bible, we have to see what limits God puts on government. And we see some here. It says, Governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So there's limits, right? God doesn't say the government can do whatever they want. In Peter, it's to, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And I think when we find the government acting outside of those God-given mandates that's when we can start to have different conversations. Like if God, if the government, if, if Biden tomorrow says, you must worship Moloch, that's when we're like, 
bad news. That's maybe where we don't listen to them. But I think when it's something that we personally don't agree with, I know some people, you know, if you're on Facebook, you see it's only political these days. Like, it's ads, politics, and maybe a cat picture. Maybe. But if you want to know what people who don't honor God, or don't honor the government for the sake of the Lord look like, get on Facebook, see what your grandparents' friends are posting. (laughs) Like, holy cow. (laughs) So, but, you know, it, but it's always the silliest things, right? It's, it's never like, we're not being told, like, sacrifice your child. But people are like, can you believe I have to pay an extra, like, one cent on my milk? And it's like a seven-page paragraph of, like, why is this the worst thing to ever happen? Like, that can't be what it means to honor the government for the sake of the Lord. So what I'm not trying to say is there's no times ever that the government's going to tell us to do something wrong. But what I am trying to say is we need to start, when we relate to the government, we start from the position of honoring God. And I, and I think this is really challenging. I don't want to say that this is easy because there's a spot, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, and this is honor the emperor. Has there ever been a person who called themselves emperor who's good? Like, and I know, so for the Lundgren's sake, I'm just going to say it. I'm not going to talk about Palpatine. So whoever had the Star Wars guess. <laughs> um, but, you know, has there ever been a good emperor? And they're living under Nero, the guy who kills his own mom because he just thinks she might have a bad idea against him. It never was easy to honor the emperor. It was never easy. It, you know, we think because it's in a democracy it should be hard. Or, like, the other, the other party's member won. Like, it was never easy to honor the emperor. And Peter knows that. So I just, really, if there's anything we take away from this section, I just think we got to, like, we want to cut, we just want to stop wiggling out of doing this, right? Start from a position of, for the Lord's sake, honor the emperor. And then through that, the way that we can be a message, we can be like a light and a beacon to the world around us, I think it would be huge. And again, I'm like, not giving personal examples, some mission group leaders, you get the fun job of figuring out what does it mean to honor the emperor. And some of you are going to be like, well, there's three other things. We'll talk about those. <laughs> but we're going to be under a government our whole lives. So even if you don't talk about it this week, it's, we're going to have to learn what it means to honor the, honor the emperor for the sake of the Lord. But I think it starts from a position of humility, and it starts from a position of saying, how did Jesus relate to the emperor? Jesus, who was brought up before Caesar on trumped-up fake charges, who was totally innocent, how did he relate to the emperor? How does he relate to government? And that's the place that we start at. We started saying, how does Jesus, in his ultimate humility, relate to government? So it turns into, how can we? How can we start relating to them well? So here's, here's like all of the, this, whole, this whole sermon we're going to just kind of conclude right now, right? Really easy thing to do is to take all this but just Christian freedom is exercised in subjection to God, neighbor, and government. How are the ways that we can start to exercise our freedom in light of one another? What are ways that we can start honoring everyone? How can we start loving one another? How can we learn to fear God together? How can we learn to honor the government together? And I think part of it is just saying, look at the freedom that God has given us in Jesus. Look at the way he set us free from sin and death to serve one another. And let's think about the ways this week and throughout the rest of our lives we can learn to live in subjection to one another. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you again for this message. And as we think about so many individual instances where we can put this into practice, pray that we wouldn't see that these as things we have to do on our own, but can lean on one another to learn, 
lean on one another to just exercise what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to live as a family? What does it mean to honor people that we don't want to honor? We pray we'd walk in step with your spirit who empowers us to think through these things. And I pray that you would empower us to do it as a community and as a family. Praise all in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen.